0: His name was Frank Black, a legendary forensic profiler and a devoted husband and father. He was a figure of hope and compassion, the visionary hero of one of television's most remarkable dramas. And though he faced terrible crimes and unspeakable horrors with an uncommon courage, his profound abilities evoked something deep within us all, the need for empathy, and an instinctive awareness of the darkness that threatens to overcome it. His story is both deeply personal and utterly universal. It continues to inspire audiences around the world. In this anxious and conflicted era, we wait, we worry, and we look back to Frank Black in search of a way forward. I'm Claya Scott, and this is the legacy of Chris Carter's Millennium.
1: them. To Fourth Horseman Press, a podcast from the independent publisher of the same name, and in which we talk to our authors about our books, their craft, and much more besides. I'm Adam Chamberlain, your host and associate publisher here at Fourth Horseman Press. And in this episode, we conclude our mini series of interviews with a number of the authors behind Back to Frank Black, released a decade ago. Back to Frank Black explores Millennium, a landmark television drama that ran for three seasons on the Fox Network from 1996 to 1999. It was created by Chris Carter, best known for The X-Files, and it starred Lance Henriksen, Megan Gallagher, Brittany Tiplady, and Claire Scott. And for almost the last time then, a huge thank you to Claire Scott for her amazing introduction that you heard at the beginning of the podcast there. Now, for more on the background to Back to Black, the book, check out episode Two of this podcast, the first in the series of interviews in which I talk a little bit more about that. But we have quite the finale for you. We've saved something very special for the last in this mini-series, as I will be talking to Brian A. Dixon, the founder and publisher of 4th Horseman Press and co-editor with myself on Doctor Frank Black. Now, if you're an established fan of Millennium, but you're not familiar with 4th Horseman Press, you may be thinking, Brian A. Dixon, I know that name. And indeed, yes, you do. Indeed, Brian Dixon was a character in Millennium, the leader of The Trust, an organisation that pops up in the Season 2 episode, The 4th Horseman. And that name is no coincidence, because Glenn Morgan and James Wong named that character after Brian, in recognition of his website, The Millennial Abyss, which was one of, if not arguably the foremost fan website when the series was on the air. And the Millennial Bliss was recently resurrected, if I can use that term in reference to Millennium, in a new iteration, and you'll find a link to that, of course, in the show notes. But back to now for that interview. As well as discussing his own chapter, Brian somewhat turns the tables on me in this episode as he asked me a number of questions about my own contribution to the book. And we also share a couple of anecdotes about two of the occasions on which we've met Chris Carter that served to bookend the 10 years since Back to Frank Black was published. Now, Brian and I have had any number of conversations about Millennium over the years, but this one's on the record, so let's hear it. So now we come to our final interview, and we have somebody not only uh, steeped in uh, Millennium, but also none other than the founder and publisher of 4th Horseman Press, Brian A Dixon. So welcome to your podcast Brian.
2: Hello my friend. Thank you very much. <laughs> so perhaps you can start by uh, introducing yourself. Sure. I'm a university professor. I teach English and film studies. I'm a writer and as you just noted a publisher and I'm also so prominent is this it should probably be listed on my CV and business card a serious millennium fanatic. <laughs> Great. You've come to the right place. So <laughs> Can you can you talk a little bit about how
1: you first came to Millennium as a viewer.
2: Sure. Uh, and, and I think some of the things I'm gonna say might echo some of the things other people have said in in the previous segments of this particular podcast series, and that is I, I began as an X-Files fan. I was very, very interested in the X-Files, never missed an episode, was there every Friday night, already became a serious fan of Chris Carter's work, and along came the promos for Millennium. And anyone who remembers watching the Fox Network back throughout the summer. Summer and fall of 1996. There's no way you could forget the advertising campaign for Millennium. It was a $10 million advertising onslaught, and it came on very, very, very strong. And of course, the series was taking the X-Files' time slot Friday nights at nine o'clock. And I was one of those viewers where I, I was sort of not sure how to take this. I think John Kenneth Muir in his particular interview with you, Adam, referred to the fact that Fox's advertising didn't necessarily set the series up in the way it needed to. And and I think that's true because I, I wasn't sure what to make of the show uh, watching all these ads. I was certainly interested. And so I was there watching from the very first episode and it comes on very strong Millennium. I think Millennium is a series that takes... A little bit of time to get used to or to figure out, in part because it is is so different from what we typically see on television. So for the first two or three weeks watching Millennium, I I was sort of keeping it at arm's length. I, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. And I remember very clearly the episode that turned it all around was The Judge. The week The Judge aired, I watched it and I was just completely blown away by the story. And that's the moment all reservations dropped away and where the show started to click. And from that moment on, I, I was just completely devoted to it. Now, I know our friends in the United Kingdom came to the series in, in a very different way than those here in America watching the Fox Network. So how about you, Adam?
1: Yeah, it was very different. Just reflecting on what you're saying there about taking a, you know, a few weeks to really get a sense of, of the show. Back in the, the 90s, we would have, I mean, up to a year's delay before series crossed the The Atlantic. And that was definitely the case with Millennium. It would also been the case with The X-Files before it. So I'd eagerly anticipated The X-Files and, as you were, was very much a a fan, never missed an episode, and was thrilled to hear that something new was coming from Chris Carter. But by the time it landed in the UK on video, VHS as it was, uh, (laughs) that that I originally saw it, it was that long ago, I'd been able to read quite a lot about it. So there were articles in in magazines and even, dare I say, online. So I, I kind of knew what to expect, but I also had a sense that actually it was something that that appealed to my sensibilities too. So I was there uh, right from the off. Never missed an episode. The, the whole of that first series got, got released on uh, VHS. Then thanks to my brother, I had access to the second season via satellite television. But then I lost access completely in the third season. I had to mm. wait till the DVD release to watch the third season. So it was kind of a strange way of experiencing that final season. And it's only since the DVD release that I've been able to sit down and really watch the series from start to finish right so what about what what was it about millennium that appealed to you
2: yeah so uh, millennium as I say it's it's completely unlike other television series and and so that is one of the things that appealed to me is there was a depth and complexity to the series that was very very alluring very unique. And it certainly had a a thematic resonance for me at the start. And I have to say, we'll we'll touch on this later, I know that thematic resonance has only become stronger over the years, over time. But at the same time, Millennium is a very stylistic series, very powerful in, in its cinematography and its visuals. So I, I don't, don't think I can underestimate the impact that that had on me. And, and just in general, it's a masterfully made series from acting to music to cinematography, very powerful in every way. It's a masterclass in how to make an affecting television series.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I guess it was similar for me. I think some of the themes of the series that it appealed to me. I guess as we're going to get into, with uh, we'll we'll talk a little later about this exploration of evil. That was just something that, that was of interest to me anyway. And then you add that to what I knew about the, the way that Chris Carter a- approached storytelling and via the X Files. It was an easy sell for me. But but as you say, I arrived so fully formed and so perfectly formed, I was sold right from the pilot there.
2: Yeah, in the book, Chris Carter, in his interviews, reflects on the fact that today, looking back, he feels that millennium's depth and complexity is one of the things that kept it from becoming popular. He looks at other television series like Criminal Minds that that may lack some of the thematic elements that Millennium had, and he said, yeah, maybe without those elements, it would have been more popular. But I have to say, we as Millennium fans I know wouldn't have it any other way, that it was that depth, complexity, and thematic resonance of the series that made it so special, that makes it unique, and it's the reason we're still talking about it today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm sh- sure some of those other series will, will come and go, but won't have that lasting effect upon viewership that Millennium had on us. So let's dive into your chapter, which is titled Second Sight Profiling, Prophecy, and Deductive Reasoning in Chris Carter's Millennium. What was it that inspired you to want to write under that title and topic?
2: Well, I'm a great fan of detective stories uh, in any medium, you know, whether we're talking about Sherlock Holmes or Miss Marple or Columbo or Adrian Monk. I I love detectives in film and fiction. And it's always interested me that these were the origins, the ancestry behind Millennium, that the series is very unique and hard to categorize. But at the same time, almost all of its profound mysteries begin with a criminal investigation. So at its baseline, Millennium is a detective story or a crime drama. So I was interested in looking at that, looking at the roots or demonstrating the roots in detective literature of Millennium. And at the same time, I've always been particularly fascinated by Frank Black's visions in Millennium. Uh, In the essay, I refer to this as one of the show's trademark hooks, because from the very beginning, the visions, both in those Fox promos and in the show itself, served to distinguish the show from other procedurals or crime dramas that had come before. You're watching Millennium, and Frank has one of his visions, as you say— Wow, what what was that? <laughs> there's something very unique going on here. And there is a mystery or complexity to those visions in and of themselves that has always fascinated me. They're one of the enduring questions of millennium: is what is Frank Black tapping into when he has one of these visions? And there's a connection between the detective genre and Frank Black's visions in that the linchpin of all detective stories are their representation of deductive reasoning. This is the drive and appeal of the detective story is how is the detective figuring out the mystery? What is it that is deductive reasoning? And Frank Black's visions are how we see this represented in a very visceral, affecting way on screen. So I was interested in exploring these ideas and again, sort of demonstrating the genre conventions at work in Millennium, or more correctly, the vo- genre conventions that are being exploded on Millennium. Yeah, and it's one of the things I particularly like to make a chapter, because I'd not really
1: thought about sort of setting Frank Black in that sort of history of detective fiction and some of those who came before him. And obviously, you draw those links out extremely well in this in this chapter. So how would you set Millennium in the context of the history of detective fiction?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting. I think there's there's a definite connection between uh literary criticism here and and film criticism between the literary origins of the detective story or the mystery and millennium and between let's say if we go back to the beginning of the detective story between Edgar Allan Poe and Chris Carter, both working with similar themes. So the detective story originates in Edgar Allan Poe's The Murders in the Room Org, which is a famous and celebrated detective story which is so clever in its construction that it sets out a formula for the detective story which is still being used today. It's it's almost an unaltered formula with variations and various genre denominations over the years. But the formula that Poe established from the start is, is very strong and very appealing. And uh, one of the things he identifies from the very start of the genre there is that its deductive reasoning it's it's the ability to observe the specific clues that need to be observed and then to put them together in the right order so that we can see or envision a solution. That's the appeal of the detective story. And we see this, again, reiterated in various subgenres over the years. We see this in in mysteries on film and on television. And certainly that's the case in Millennium. I open the essay with an epigraph from the Murders in the Room Org because it is one of these passages in the story where you read it and Poe might as well be described. Frank Black with regard to his observational talents or deductive talents. So Millennium is very, very difficult to classify. This I acknowledge in the essay is, is it's one of the wonderful things about Millennium. You say someone might ask you if you were t- telling them they should check the show out, you know, oh, what what genre is it? What type of show is it? And this is where you would stumble because you would say, well, it's a crime drama horror, conspiracy thriller with references to the gospel and fairy tales and apocalyptic <laughs> fiction. You know, very, very hard to classify. It is all of these things and it is none of these things. But again, all of its profound mysteries begin with, generally speaking, criminal investigation. So it's interesting to me that that is the baseline of the series. And it's interesting to explore how I feel Frank Black and the series as a whole sort of represent the ultimate evolution of these ideas
1: and there's also a connection that you draw between detective fiction and behavioral profiling right how those those two are connected
2: yeah, absolutely. And that and that's something I don't have to work hard to make that connection, because John Douglas himself, famous behavioral profiler who worked for the behavioral sciences unit at the FBI, he specifically identifies this connection, even referring to C. August Dupin, who is the detective of the murders in the room org, saying that yes, before there ever were true criminal profilers, the detectives in fiction, such as Poe's Short Stories, or or Sherlock Holmes and Doyle, were doing the very things that criminal profilers do today. It's this idea, not only the deductive reasoning element, but also devising proactive means of drawing a killer out. This is something that Dupin does in the Murders in the Room org says, hmm, here we have a crime scene. I have an idea of the type of person who would do this. Now, how do we draw them out so we can capture them? And as Douglas says, that's exactly what behavioral profilers are doing. How do we not only understand the behavior of a killer, but direct the behavior? of a killer. And this is something we see in Millennium very often as well. You talk about how
1: you you open up your chapter with an epigraph, and of course they feature in in Millennium itself, and it's a very
2: literate series, right? This is something that I always found very interesting about Millennium, that every episode of the first season opens with an epigraph, you know, a reference to either a poem or a story from the literary giants throughout the years. And uh, it's it's just very interesting to me that a television series would make this creative choice to open each episode with a reference to literature, you know, rather than to what we're sitting down to watch on Friday night on the boob tube. And that literacy is, is not just slapped on the screen as an epigraph at the start, but certainly woven throughout... The series as a whole. In the essay, I talk about how literate Frank Black and Peter Watts and other members of the Millennium Group need to be for their detail-oriented profession. You know that that when they come across a reference in, in a criminal investigation to, to a clue to the Bible to literature, they need to have a sort of instant recall and say, "Well, what's that a reference to?" Oh, I know what that's a reference to. You know, and, and that's very, very interesting to me that a series would instead of shying away from that on television because perhaps the assumption that television. Audiences aren't interested in looking to a book. That's why they're watching television. But it was very interesting to me that here was a series that was very literate, interested exploring the connections between the literature that had preceded it and the themes that they were exploring. That That's appealing to me.
1: Yeah, it was definitely a point of appeal to me. And it gives more depth and resonance still, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Every episode you watch might as well have a reading list that accompanies yeah. it. You you just catalog all the references. And if you want to know more, you go and look look it up in the book.
1: So you mentioned as well that it's the nature of Frank Black's gift that uh, was another thing that that interested you and uh, and you wanted to explore in in, in the USA. So I'll give you the the simple task of perhaps (laughs) telling a little bit about the nature of Frank's gift and perhaps how that develops across the series as a whole.
2: In five words or less, please uh, <laughs> please define the nature of Frank Black's gift. Well, this is, of course, an impossible task to so succinctly define it. And that's why it's fascinating. That's why uh, this is one of the enduring questions of Millennium. And Millennium, one of the reasons we're all still re watching it, one of the reasons we're recording a podcast right now, still talking about it, is Millennium left us with many, many questions, and questions that are not easily answered. Questions about its own mythology, its characters, some of its stylistic elements. They're questions that Millennium fans are going to be debating for decades to come. And I think Frank's visions are are one of these enduring mysteries of the series. They're not easily defined, and their, their nature sort of shifts with the themes and stories of the series. And at the start, it's it's very clearly a representation of deductive reasoning. A lot of the debate around Frank Black's visions at, at the start when the show premiered revolved around, is he a psychic or not? You know, so much so in the press that psychic has become a dirty word for the Millennium fan. We, we're so adamant. He's not a psychic. He's not receiving divine visions from outside. It's his own deductive talents, his own ability to link together clues or ideas or observations that provide him with this understanding, with this visualization of how a crime happened or where the killer came from. And, and that seems very clear at the start of the series, but there are certain elements, even in pilot, and they build as time goes on, that sort of trouble our understanding of this representation of deductive reasoning, and, and it becomes more complex, certainly by the time we get to seasons two and season three, there are spiritual elements added to this. There are interpretive elements. Frank Black's visions in season two, Morgan and Wong wanted them to play out much more like dreams, dreams that he would have to interpret the symbolism that he was seeing. And in season three, they take on still another form and they start giving him flashes of historical context that relates to each of the mysteries he's investigating. So I think it's very fascinating to sort of map the changing representation of his visions to Frank Black as a character. Why are they changing? Because he as a character is changing. And to keep considering that in relation to their roots, which is the representation of deductive reasoning that is so key, so appealing in a detective story
1: and and just how those visions are shown are represented visually in the series is also something you get into and fascinating just in terms of cinematography but but also the influence those have had on on the genre.
2: I go into a lot of detail in the essay because it's it's very interesting from a filmmaking perspective into how they filmed the visions especially in the first season they were filmed completely differently than the rest of the series because the people working on the series wanted it to look a very s- specific way and they're so ephemeral. They're so quick. They happen. The average vision in season one of the show is less than two seconds on screen. So you just get bombarded with this sensory overload, which grants you a glimpse into what is happening in the mind of Frank Black. And that's, of course, what detective stories do. We're desperate to see things as the detective does. But certainly we cannot we're not privy to the innermost workings of Frank Black's mind. We're, we're, we're not as clever as he is. We're not as observant as he is. We rely on him to interpret these things for us. So they're very quick, very tantalizing. And so it's interesting to look at the artistry of how they filmed those things, how they are so vivid for lasting so little on screen. But at the same time, there's a danger in detective fiction of the art of deductive reasoning being cold or logical. You know, this is one of the defining traits of Sherlock Holmes that we've seen in the original stories or in various film representations over the years is Holmes is a sort of withdrawn figure and Millennium's visions are quite the opposite. They don't allow us to distance ourselves from the humanity or the horror of the crime or what is involved in sort of understanding. That crime. Uh, And that's key to our understanding of Frank Black as a character. But as you noted, these visions and the way they're represented on screen are so appealing and so unique and so instantly memorable that they've become very, very influential in television and film in the years since. And this is one of the arguments, I suppose you could say, of my essay is that Millennium is a landmark series in more ways than one. But one of the ways in which it was sort of a vanguard or pioneer was in representing deductive reasoning in a very visceral or visual or engaging way on screen. And this is something we have seen more and more often in the years since, Uh, whether we're talking about Sherlock from Stephen Moffat, in which we're seeing textual tags on screen like we might see on a computer, but instead they're being used to represent how Sherlock Holmes sees the world, whether we're seeing it in supernatural dramas, there is an artistry to depicting the visions of, of seeing the world in a different way that traces right back to Millennium as a unique drama.
1: Yeah. And, and what you sort of build to through, through the essay from exploring the literary history, as you should just be talking about the visions and how, how we experience them and so on. And, and the influence on the genre is, is that you call out Frank Black as being the ultimate evolution of the detective.
2: Just as Millennium from a genre standpoint could be viewed in many different ways, Frank Black as a hero can be viewed in different ways. Uh, we know that the the writers on the series often thought of him as the archetypal gunslinger who goes from town to town solving problems in a Western. Paul Clark, in the earlier interview, made a, a wonderful observation, I think, that said Frank Black is a Van Helsing figure, uh, the figure who goes out into the world to challenge uh, supernatural or great evil and so as a detective, as a sort of archetypal detective, that, that's how I see Frank Black. And one of the reasons, to me, he is the greatest hero I have uh, encountered in any medium or any story. He, he is, to me, the ultimate evolution of the detective. And that is, what is a detective? The detective is someone who has an unrivaled skill for observation and deductive reasoning, able to link those observations into a meaningful understanding. We know from Millennium, Frank Black, as described by Fox Mulder, is the greatest behavioral profiler that Quantico ever produced, right? We see he is able to observe things. He is willing to observe things that no one else around him is able to. So he has that unrivaled gift for observation taken to the extreme. And he uses that gift to, as a detective does, a detective uses those gifts to challenge or overcome mysteries that, we might feel uncomfortable thinking about. Horrendous crimes, brutal crimes, crimes that pose questions we don't have the answer to. So the detective is a sort of mediating figure that makes us more comfortable, takes us along with him to challenge these kinds of mysteries. And again, Frank Black is sort of the ultimate iteration of that. He is a Making deductions about unraveling truly brutal crimes, the most horrific crimes that we could imagine. But it goes even further than that. He is challenging mysteries on an apocalyptic scale. You know, he is challenging conspiracies that threaten to unravel world history. So it's taken to the nth degree. And the killers that he's seeking to identify, to understand, are not simply serial killers, as we see in season one, but from lamentation onward, the killer is sometimes evil incarnate itself. You know, the devil herself. This is the detective as a character taken to its ultimate degree. This is one of those moments where I want to stand and applaud. <laughs> in
1: agreement with you? <laughs> I'll but, join so. you, my friend. <laughs> and if Fox Mulder says he's the greatest, then uh, then it must be right.
2: Yep. That's one of the reasons, uh see, the, the X-Files crossover uh, has its high points. And, <laughs> yeah. and for me, Fox Mulder engaging in that sort of hero worship for Frank Black is a high point. There you go. <laughs> so with that point, Adam, that Frank Black may be the ultimate evolution of the detective, we should turn the tables and the killers or monsters that he seeks, the villains in the series bear some deeper examination as well. And that's where your essay comes in. Evil has many faces, the darkness in the world of Millennium. So what inspired you to write about the evil represented in Millennium stories?
1: I think it's a topic that that I was certainly fascinated by before Millennium. Came along and then only heightened my interest. And I guess it's one of those questions that humanity has asked itself through the ages about what evil is and where it comes from and how it can be combated. So to do a a deep dive into that was was a particular interest. I'd I'd also, uh, well, I was inspired by Millennium to actually go and study psychology to take a degree in psychology, including a year I spent on criminology. Uh, And I think that also deepened
2: my interest and, and and made me want to
1: explore Millennium
2: in that context. Mm. I know this comes up a lot in in interviews with you, and that's just fascinating that that it would spur you to that level of study of this particular subject matter. And that certainly comes through in your essays. So in Millennium's exploration of evil begins with the serial killer at the very start of the series. And and Mm. as with its other elements, that becomes more complex and deep as the series goes. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the role that serial killers play, both in season one of Millennium, and perhaps in our own society.
1: I mean, the serial killer is seen as being something of a sort of modern aberration in, in human behavior. It's sort of questionable whether that's the case or whether it's the advances in behavioral science and so on that you spoke about earlier that actually just brought them to, to, to the fore. But certainly, it seemed to be a phenomenon in terms of the public consciousness that, that we were aware of and seemed to be emerging and growing um, t- towards the sort of second half of the 20th century. And people were fascinated by, you know, how people could do, these these unspeakable things as well, but I think it, it particularly fits for Millennium because the I mean not just the serial killers but but also the other the other killers who don't quite fit that that serial killer moniker in in the first season they I think I I refer to it as sort of a cracked mirror that it holds up to society and the fact that society could produce these killers I think it helps play into the themes that uh, Chris Card is interested in exploring in terms of the sort of rising tide of evil in in the world. So if if society can produce this phenomenon of serial killers what does that say about us and i think it's it's one strand of this understanding of evil that we seek to approach in millennium that is uh, particularly helpful to explore through that theme of of these kinds of people that are out there in the world and especially these people who are strangers so so most most killings most murders uh, happen between people who know each other you know a member of the family or somebody who is known to them but the i think the particular fear that comes with a serial killer that again plays into the themes of of fear that millennium explores the fact that this is the stranger yeah, and anyone could be a victim and that's that's particularly scary too
2: yeah, in your interview with John Kenneth Muir, uh, the two of you were quite rightly talking about the, the problem of labeling Millennium as a serial killer of the week series. And one of the problems that comes with that, you get drawn into this discussion of, oh, well, Millennium is literally about serial killers and debating the relevance of that. But certainly it goes beyond that. There is an allegorical element to each of these serial killer stories when we're talking about the evils in society and in, in ourselves that are reflected in each of the villains on the series. Um, and I think that's important to keep in mind. Absolutely, and, and certainly the series goes well beyond that dynamic, the serial killer search dynamic, the behavioral science dynamic. And one of the most interesting things about Millennium is its unscientific approach to examining evil that Chris Carter stated from the start. He was interested in. In moving beyond psychology, beyond the approach of looking at everyone as a victim of some kind or another, and considering evil as an outside force. So perhaps you could lead us into a discussion about how the depiction of evil changes throughout the series, starting with the serial killer, but moving well beyond that.
1: Yeah, as you, as you say, it was it was something that Chris Carter was was interested to explore. So this kind of kind of scientific approach and the fact that the evolution of a serial killer could be explored, explained, you could help identify people through these sort of scientific advances, behavioral science advances is is one thing. But the notion that that actually evil could be a force of some kind that cannot be explained in in some way is a, I mean, it's one of the things that plays out throughout the series, back and forth, right, in terms of exploring either interpretation, but the idea of the existence of of the devil or, and demons in one way can seem to play into this sort of binary logic saying there are good people in the world there are evil people and evil forces in the world and we need it for the good people to triumph over these evil people and the e- evil forces and I think the series as, as it goes along it certainly introduces more complexity to that and say well actually <laughs> it's not just good people and bad people it's a, little, it's a little bit more blurred around the edges on that I think what's so what's interesting some of the sources and I think the sources that I found through the study of psychology that, that I'd done and then I sort of delved deeper into there's an individual called M. Scott Peck who would written, written a number of books. He was essentially a psychologist who was interested in exploring evil from a from a scientific perspective. but he actually changed his mind quite quite dramatically through mm. the course of his research and it, it was actually as a result of partaking in or bearing witness to a number of exorcisms that he actually decided no evil, is a force so so yes there's this this human evil this sort of lack of conscience I can almost say it, it infects people but also I do now believe that evil as a force as a sort of possession and Satan himself actually exists and I just find it fascinating that somebody who'd deeply explored this topic in the way that Frank black does came yep. to that conclusion he wasn't somebody who was particularly re- religious i think he had buddhist leanings uh, early in his life but he became christian as a result of, it, of his work and actually believed in satan as a, as, as a force so i think it's kind of interesting that we still have this tension between both of these things where we can say okay yeah well we can see how society has bred this particular type of killer but actually there are certain evil forces or, or evil people in the world where actually that scientific approach doesn't apply and and we have to consider something else and, and actually evil as a force i think when you when you look at the way demons were sort of first introduced or explored, there's probably an element where they were used as a way of explaining away mental illness, and there's that mm-hmm. element as well. But then they become quite useful in an allegorical sense as well, in, in that context too, when, when we think about demons and how they're, how they're used in
2: storytelling too. Which brings us to Ezekiel 19.10. Thy mother is like a vine in thy blood, planted by the waters. She was fruitful and full of branches, By reason of many waters. And you cite this quotation from the episode Lamentation, of course, a reference to Frank Black's street address. You cite this as a reference to the contagion of evil, which is interesting to look at, I think, because it is one of the dominant themes in Chris Carter's work as a whole not strictly in Millennium, but certainly when we look at the X-Files as well, and we're talking about things like the black oil, contagion as a whole, whether it's the black oil or the Marburg virus, contagion is a recurrent theme, and evil as contagious is something that pops up as well as this idea of evil as a force. Uh, Is this something you see as well in the series?
0: Yeah,
1: definitely. And I think over the course of the series, it starts to break down this binary logic that I was talking about before there. There are lots of examples throughout the series. I think of the cycles of violence in an episode like The Wild and the Innocent from season one. And in season one, as we've talked about, people reference serial killers, but there's also lots of examples of broken people doing bad things. You get intrafamily violence that self-destructs a family in an episode like Covenant, for instance. In the second season, I think about an episode like Monster, which is an investigation into child abuse that actually starts to get into the question of nature versus nurture can a child be born evil and and frank black has a there's a conversation between frank black and lara means in that episode where frank has a great little speech where he talks about evil as a force like gravity like the wind and he says it's blown across cambodia being a cyclone in nazi germany uh, it gusts throughout los angeles and and he talks about this child being a pre-storm a breeze of an approaching hurricane it's this wonderful sort of lyrical moment in in terms of dialogue. But I think it speaks to this. The black oil comparison that that you you call out there from the X-Files is a good one. Even setting aside the actual contagion that then comes up prominently in the end of season two, this idea that none of us is invulnerable. It can find a way in whenever we are vulnerable to it. And it takes a constant effort perhaps to keep it out. The idea of looking into the darkness and being changed by it is arguably explored in an episode like the Pest House. Now that's done in terms of mental illness and how that might propagate, and it's done in a somewhat speculative way. I've blogged about this actually. I might include a link to this in the uh, in the show notes to my book Frame of Mind, which goes into this in, in more depth. But it's another version of contagion in this way. Th- there's another book that I reference throughout my essay, actually by uh, Philip Zimbardo, a great book with a great title called The Lucifer Effect, which is very much about this and the idea of being resistant to evil finding a way into our lives. And, and, and I think that comes back to this idea of being able to think of it as contagion. I think it's something that Frank Spotnitz has spoken about quite a bit in relation to the series that he was interested in that particular idea that everyone has this sort of capacity for evil. And actually, that's what makes a character like Frank Black all the more heroic is the fact that he's able to resist it when he encounters it on such a
2: frequent basis. And you alluded to this earlier, but to that point that anyone can potentially be touched by evil, we have the representation of the Millennium Group, which Mm. shifts dramatically from season one to season two and offers us sort of a depiction or commentary on that.
1: It does, yeah. I know a lot of people actually don't like the idea that the Millennium Group, which was based on the real life Academy Group, has this descent into evil. But I think we have to separate the fictional Millennium Group from the, from the real life Academy Group because with the Millennium Group we get to explore an interesting idea. It's something that again is 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 rooted in in study in this space that that actually specialized groups who are experts in in certain fields can be prone to narcissism and. That can ultimately make them feel superior to other groups, and therefore feel that they have a right to behave however they they wish, and, and that can push them to some do some quite dark, ag- aggressive things. And that and that's something that that's been explored. Again, I think uh, Peck, who I was talking about before, he, he he explored this and wrote about this a little bit, and he talked about it in terms of uh, law enforcement. But it's it's not just in in that context. Funnily enough, I was reading a newspaper the other day where where the Pope, in his pre Christmas address to cardinals. At the, at the Vatican had warned them about the devil lurking among them, and saying there's this this elegant demon that can work in people who have a, a, a sort of rigid or holier than thou way of living their faith. So, and, and it made me think straight away of the, of the Millennium Group, because that's how my mind works. But <laughs> but uh, the, the fact that a group that that sees themselves as working for the benefit of humankind. Can be pushed into doing such uh, horrendous things that that the Millennium Group does over the course of the series.
2: Yeah, you, there's a wonderful statement you make in your essay, which is, we often talk about how all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Would you say it's important also to remember what can happen when good men will stop at nothing mm. to stop evil? And and the Millennium Group seems to be a wonderful representation of this. Yes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah, a slight sort of bastardization
2: of Edmund Burke's quote, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, we talk about, or I spoke about the enduring mysteries of millennium, you know, questions that cannot be answered and that the series asks us to consider. Uh, and I suppose the nature of evil is one of those questions. Uh, is this something that can be truly defined or categorized? And it can't really.
1: Right. It's it's something that Chris Carter, I think, acknowledged him, himself, that he was sort of asking this question about what is evil, that there's no sort of one answer to to. and again uh, Peck talked about it as well it just sort of said that it's this it's too important idea this idea of human evil is is too big an idea to really claim an overall understanding of we could approach a level of understanding on it but it will always be just out of our reach and I think the ambiguity that that uh, millennium offers is fits perfectly with that and I think it speaks to the intelligence of the series that it doesn't try and offer packed answers to these questions the questions themselves remain to, to at least some extent
2: unanswered yeah, they're the, they're they are the questions that we're going to be asking ourselves for our entire lives. Absolutely.
1: Okay, so where this this podcast series has uh, very much been a, a sense of sort of reflecting back on the the ten years since we published Back to Frank Black. Perhaps to to bookend that, I recall actually. I had the pleasure of meeting Chris Carter at around the time that the book was was published. He made a rare appearance at the Austin Film Festival in the fall of uh, of twenty twelve, and I remember a. Mad Weekend, where I flew from London to Texas for the weekend to be present <laughs> at, um, at, at this festival. What was rather brilliant was he had an appearance where he was airing two episodes from, from his work, and he, uh, he chose Clyde Bookman's Final Repose for, from the X-Files. The- an excellent choice. An excellent choice, indeed. Darren Morgan episode. And he chose the pilot of Millennium. And, uh, it was amazing just to, well, to see that on a big screen, but, but also to hear him talk about it and to be able to put a copy of the book in, in his hand and have a, have a few moments with him afterwards. Actually, Lance Henriksen was in town for that festival that same weekend, but I didn't realize that until after I'd met Chris. So, so I didn't manage to sort of draw oh, the two no. of them together, but it was, it was a sort of wild weekend where I didn't get very much sleep and, uh, it feels a bit like a dream now at this distance. But... <laughs> But nonetheless, it was great to be able to hand him a copy of the book, and, uh, and you can see a photo on our website, in fact, of of Chris with the book taken on that uh, on that day. But fast forward ten years, you actually met Chris earlier this. We're talking in the, in the final days of twenty twenty two at the moment, so a little earlier this year, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. So to bookend it, I you, you met Chris in 2012, and I met him in 2022. And uh, this was at the grand opening of the X-Files Preservation Collection in Saratoga Springs, New York, uh, which is a wonderful place to visit if you're ever in the vicinity of upstate New York. You've got to swing by the X-Files Preservation Collection. If you are as observant as Frank Black, you will find one or two artifacts from Millennium in amongst the collection of X-Files artifacts. But Chris Carter attended the grand opening opening. And so I, I made it a point to be there. I was the one in the crowd representing Millennium with my Ouroboros t-shirt. And when Chris and I spoke, we talked a bit about the future because this is something the Millennium fan needs to be concerned with is, is how is Millennium going to gain new viewers? Where, How is it going to be available in the future? So I asked Chris a question about Whether or not there was going to be a forthcoming Blu-ray release of the series, because this is something each of us has our DVD collections. And I think uh, if anyone out there listening is like me, then they're afraid of what might happen if their DVD collection or its backup were Mm -hmm. to be destroyed. Um, <laughs> so I, I want another format. And, and Chris was was very positive about a potential Blu-ray release, but he very quickly shifted the conversation to talk about streaming. And, and Chris Carter made it very clear that his mission right now is to get Millennium on a streaming platform, preferably Hulu. And he said he and his people are working uh, as hard as they can to make this happen because they know... That's what's going to keep the series alive. That's what's going to let people find Millennium and be able to discover it as a result of podcasts like this or chatter related to it. So this is something that we should keep an eye out for. Mm, let's hope
1: that's the case. Indeed, it's it's as you say, coming increasingly difficult to get it on DVD. Those those DVDs are out of print, right? So uh, yeah, that's right. Let's yeah. let's hope this comes through. I think Frank Spotnitz made a comment and he he answers questions on online. He has like a mailbag and he made some reference to there being some rights issues that they're working through. Let's hope they're successful in doing that and mm. name is there for people to discover anew. So. Uh, I guess the difficult question again here, we're talking about the legacy of of Millennium. So what is it that Millennium still means to you today?
2: Millennium is as powerful and affecting as it has ever been. Every few years I rewatch the series, I'm in fact right in the middle of a rewatch right now. I watched Maranatha the other day. Every Sunday night I watch an episode. And as I mentioned earlier, its themes simply become increasingly relevant, I think, uh as time goes on and as we have the chance to contend with them or, or try to work through them. Right now in the United States, we're we're trying to answer questions related to widespread gun violence. We're seeing increasing problems with or increasingly visible problems with police brutality and police corruption. And of course, we're in the middle of an actual worldwide pandemic. So the sort of stories that Millennium told are more relevant to us today than than perhaps even when they were first aired. But I think that just speaks to the fact that the series has a poignancy in in every era. These are, as we discussed, Everlasting questions, questions, eternal questions, questions that cannot be answered. And it's important for us to contend with. And that's one of the things the figure Frank Black does is sort of allow us, encourage us to face these difficult questions. Uh, One of the points you made in your essay, Adam, that I think is very, very important is that evil can be combated in our everyday lives by a sense of purpose. And that's one of the things the guiding light of Frank Black gives to us. At the same time, Joe Tangery made a wonderful observation in his interview that Millennium is a demonstration of how TV got to where it is today, TV production, and that we're in a very interesting era of television where we have many, many original series on many different platforms and, and lots of engaging stuff. And Millennium at its sort of formative point in the mid-90s in the television landscape shows us where these shows came from, you know, and not just in the depiction of things like Frank Black's visions and deductive reasoning on screen, but the the way stories are told all starts back with millennium and, and, To the point about streaming and Blu-ray releases, John Kenneth Muir indicated this is the mission of a fandom, is the preservation of the series. This is an important series, an influential series. And I think that we as fans today, uh, our mission continues, and that is to get those DVDs into the hands of people who might enjoy them, to continue talking about the series and and enjoying ourselves and discussing these profound questions and learning from them. There's a lot to learn from Millennium still today in
1: 2022.
2: There really is. And
1: I think, uh, I mean, I talked a little bit about the questions around evil that you say these kind of eternal questions. Uh, I was listening to another podcast just just earlier today on, on my morning walk, a podcast called The Rest is Politics. And it's kind of about the state of politics in the UK, but globally. It's It's got uh, so Rory Stewart and, and Alistair Campbell, who are quite prominent figures from, from British politics. And they were answering mailbag questions. And this question came in about, you know, what is evil? And, and they had this whole discussion about uh, sort of egotism and lack of moral compass and, and so on and so forth. But as you say, it's the, the questions that are always being asked, always always with us. And uh, as you say, with the state of the world today, as, as, as relevant as ever. And uh, as you said, Frank Black is this, this ultimate evolution of the detective, but uh, and in that sense, sort of like an ultimate response, right, to, to the many types of evil that, that he got uh, presented with.
2: Absolutely. Uh, Frank Black's defining quality is empathy, that he approaches these problems without judgment and with empathy. And if there is any lesson we can learn from Frank Black, I think that's what it is.
1: So you say that's the series legacy is, there, is then some of those messages that we take away and and its influence on, on how television is made.
2: As I say, technically, there's a lot that Millennium gave modern television. But in terms of storytelling and and message, I think Millennium still is above many of the television series that we're seeing today. Perfectly put.
1: Perhaps in closing, what would we like to share in terms of what is upcoming, uh, forthcoming soon from 4th Horseman Press?
2: Well, there's always something exciting coming from Fourth Horseman Press. We're dedicated to publishing quality books, quality fiction of the slipstream variety, generally speaking, and quality academic analysis, media criticism of the sort that backed Frank Black represented. So at the moment, we're, we're working on, uh, we're just about to release the paperback of Alexander Zelony's These Long Teeth of the Night, which is an outstanding collection of Weird, fantastical, and often dark fiction. Anyone who enjoys Millennium might enjoy These Long Teeth of the Night. And we're also preparing for our next release, which is some years ago, I wrote a book on representations of the body in James Bond novels and films. And that release is going to be forthcoming from 4th Horseman Press in 2023. Mm. So lots to
1: look forward to in the year year ahead. All that remains, I guess, is, is for me to thank you for coming on your podcast. Brian. <laughs> we've had many conversations about Millennium over the years. Indeed, indeed, I should say, it really, a friendship founded initially upon our shared love of Millennium. Uh, I, I don't think would have known each other or had the friendship or a creative collaboration that we've had but for Millennium.
2: That's right. It all started with discussions about the series and and some of these questions we talked about, and it has led to a very strong, enduring, meaningful friendship for both of us.
1: Absolutely. So personally speaking, I would say that's part of its legacy too. But but yeah, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation today. And um, thanks for spending the time with us.
2: The pleasure was mine. I'm happy to talk about Millennium with anyone at any time.
1: And thank you once again to Brian for that conversation, which I think you can tell we very much enjoyed. Now, to find out more about Back to Frank Black, including how to order a copy, go to our website at fourthhorsemanpress.com. All proceeds from sales of the book still go to Children of the Night, a US-based nonprofit profit chosen by Lance Henriksen and which intervenes in and rehabilitates the lives of children who have suffered from sexual exploitation. We're also on Twitter at Fourth Horse Press, that's beginning with the number four, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please do subscribe and please rate and review us to help other people find us too. Now, for more about Millennium, there are some other resources we'd like to point you towards. First up on those is the Millennium Group Sessions Redux. That is a podcast series from James McLean and Troy Foreman, who ran the Back to Frank Black campaign that was the genesis for the book. And what you'll hear in those are a number of interviews with cast and crew that indeed we referenced throughout the book itself. Now, in addition to that podcast, Troy Foreman also went on to be one of the executive producers on Millennium After the Millennium, a feature-length documentary about the series released in 2019. So do check that out too. And then in terms of other podcasts, from the We Made This Network, you can listen to an episode-by-episode discussion of Millennium in The Time Is Now. And their sister podcast, The X-Cast, recently interviewed Chris Carter, and you can hear him talk about Millennium a number of times throughout that interview. Again, all those links and more to be found in the show notes. Now, as I said, this is sadly the last in our mini-series of interviews about Back to Frank Black, but do keep your eyes on your podcast feed as we'll be releasing an omnibus edition, collecting all of these interviews together in an epic edition in the very near future. For now, though, keep reading keep writing, and hold your Millennium DVDs close for all they're worth, even as we look forward to hopefully seeing the series streaming very soon. One way or another though, please do watch or re-watch Millennium. Let's help keep its legacy alive, because after all, this is who we are.